Night falls on the golden age of humanity. Sons shall turn upon their father, and his worlds drown in blood. The eye shall open, and the galaxy will burn. Join us, listeners. We go into the canon lore of the Forge World Black Books on Heresy Grad School. Professors Jason, Patrick, and Dave, myself, will dive into the lore of the Black Books and the Black Library novels that we know and love and explore the heresy as history. So get a coffee, get your notebook out, and uh, prepare to explore heresy as history with us on Heresy Grad School. Oh, he's back. We're going to get used to that. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to get used to that, for the listener's sake at least. Cool. So, uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to a, another awesome episode of Heresy Grad School with uh, Professors Dave, Jason, and myself, Pat. Um, let's see, where are we starting out tonight, Jason? All right, tonight we're going to start out with the Death Guard Assault on the Cyclops Cluster with Death on Dominica Minor. It's going to be good stuff. Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, just for a quick cover for the... Uh, for our listeners, we had uh, Stephen and Austin on last week, and uh, they'll probably be back on for uh, next week's episode, too. So, Got to get to discussing all that death in the void, which is you know one it. of the big things that drew us to this in the first place, is 50% of this or more is very um, Imperialis Armada concentrated. So lots of uh, Starfleet action going. Yeah, definitely. If you guys like the... Blood in the Void, there's lots more to come. So stay tuned, strap in, and we will take you deep into the Void and other places too. Most definitely. All right, guys. So let's talk Dominica Minor. So Dominica Minor kind of sets the whole deal for the Cyclops Cluster, just getting just getting its shit pushed in, let's be honest here. Um, they did not have a whole lot of chance going into this. Um, Istvan survivors had been fleeing back through. The entirety of the Coronet Deeps were getting all of these crazy rumors coming back from survivors. They were getting, like, wacky astropathic messages that made no sense. Like, none of this is going well for anybody. But Dominica Minor is a very large kind of governmental seat of power for the Cyclops Cluster. So obviously it's a huge target to anything that's invading. Now, we spoke time before last about how the Death Guard, the few planets they started with, like Laskal, which is smaller than Dominica Minor, but still pretty important. Uh, they're not trying to conquer things. They have 110% scorched earth policy going into this. They're just annihilating things as they go. And Dominica Minor is, let's see, the interesting thing starting out here, they tell you from the very first part that nobody knew what the hell was going on because all of these systems have been cut off from each other. Most of the time, even planets within the systems have been cut off from one another. And uh, it's so hard to get like astropathic messages through and get anything other than these fragmented rumors. So they had no idea what was going on here. And all of this 
like um, recounting what happened was actually taken from the data core of a cruiser called the Pride of Hedron. Uh, they actually found its little severed command tower like floating around 19 years after the uh, initial assault on Dominica Minor, which would have been, let's see, 4392-007-31. So <clears throat> what's going on here? The Death Guard here in like the very outer system, uh, they come in through the primary warp nexus, which is like, you know, the biggest, uh, most traffic worthy warp lane. And uh, there's not a whole lot of time for the Cyclops cluster at large to fortify. So they blow through what uh, the few small, you know, fortifications that the Cyclops cluster, you know, solar auxilia and system defense managed to erect, uh, mine and whatnot, uh, by sending through uh, a bunch of old conquered uh, ships from conquered worlds that they have uh, destroyed on their way here. Just kind of like old ratty, you know, barges and whatnot from some of these mining worlds. Now... The uh, remainder, though, they just kind of plow through, uh, you know, taking fire from atomic ordnance, uh, little server-guided missile clusters hiding in asteroid fields, things like that. And from what uh, study after the fact has gotten through, it seems to be about half of the recorded Death Guard fleet. I think Steve mentioned that uh, last time. Uh, and these are reinforced with ships uh, that have either been taken from other Loyalist legionaries or, uh, you know, from Istvan. Or uh, from a few of the things from the like mining worlds they conquered, like the barges. Now, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say there's there's definitely some really cool lore here, and I know that uh, I know Steve wants to get into it. So we're going to save some of that deep dive for uh, when Steve and Austin can come on next. I I think. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we yeah. will save all the fun. Uh... Void warfare for for Stephen Austin, but I mean we can certainly go over it ever so slightly. Just we, won't, we won't save all of it. Yeah, uh, right. I mean we we've got to have, have some fun. fun. You know, this is our show after all. Last time I checked, at least. So <laughs> I don't know. I I just tell you guys what to do. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. We'll we'll uh we'll get back to it then, Jason. All right. We'll get a little get a little taste of what's going on here. So the Death Guard comes steaming in just like they did at Laskol, but this time they break their entire force to sort of like a four-pronged attack to surround and collapse in on the planet. And each one of these kind of four points are led by a pretty uh, famous heavy capital ship. Uh, you've got four different ships, the Reaper Scythe, the Spectre of Death, uh, Mia Donna Mori, and the Dread, which is kind of interesting. It's actually a battle barge that was formerly the Winter's Oath uh, that belonged to the 10th Legion, which the Death Guard took at Istvan. So uh, the Terminus Est is actually very uh, obvious by its absence here. It's said to be one of the only heavy uh, Death Guard vessels that are unaccounted for at this time. But uh, so Dominica Minor never really had a chance to begin with. They have maybe half the ships the Death Guard have access to with only a single battleship, uh, which is one called the Spear of Umbriel. And it's said to be a Goliath class, but it's long been retired from active duty. And now it's just kind of a second line defense ship. And worse yet, the guild masters that kind of hold the power here, uh, it's sort of a uh, plutocracy, so it seems, but uh, they kind of pull that entire fleet, make it uh, very immobile by stationing it as close to Dominica Minor as they can. And that really uh, kind of cuts their room to maneuver, which is really bad when they're already outnumbered. And it basically leaves the outer 
planets of the uh, entire system completely undefended. So the Death Guard, they burn straight past all of these outside planets that are undefended, and they're essentially attempting to surrender as the Death Guard pass in by. And the Death Guard fleet is essentially just, um, they're weathering this really scattered response from the defenders to position themselves in that four-prong kind of hand uh, formation around Dominica Minor. And once they're all in position, they more or less blow all that resistance away in a single coordinated broadside across the fleet. So <clears throat> the Spear of Umbriel doesn't fare too well. Uh, it gets rammed in half by a smaller ship called the Fourth Horseman, which just knocks it apart. And uh, if they had any chance at all, as soon as they're like anchored, um, as soon as their uh, anchor of that battleship is killed, everything else kind of crumbles. The few survivors are just hunted down within an hour, which leaves the 14th free to make Planetfall. So we've got the 14th making Planetfall here, coming in in drop pods, Thunderhawks, Stormbirds, uh, amid wreckage of the former defense fleet falling from orbit. So it's not a great thing for anybody, high casualties all around. But the Death Guard are, as always, systematic in eliminating any threats. Uh, they go after comm towers, defense batteries, auspex arrays, uh, garrisons for planetary militia, that sort, that sort of thing. And they systematically neutralize them as they come in to leave the next wave pretty much unopposed. So they can touch down uh, with their assault landers and whatnot and land basically directly into the cities of uh, Dominica Minor. And Dominica Minor cities are a little unique. Uh, if you've ever seen like uh, pictures from like National Geographic of those like massive uh, step-sided mines for like um, salt, diamond, whatnot, um, they're uh, built into like these massive, you know, kind of uh, inverted ziggurat structures uh in these like really deep step-sided calderas which uh is kind of a neat visual picture you know kind of thinking of assaulting down into a fortress instead of up hey, uh, hey jason let me ask you a question here that i'm sure oh, yeah. some of our listeners are probably thinking right now right so i mean this is the, this is the death card right this is the 14th legion they're you know they're known for just like virus bombing a planet and moving on Right. Releasing. Re yeah. Just releasing that, you know, life eater virus into the atmosphere and just, you know, tolerance style moving on. But uh, so so why do you think they wanted to make Planetfall here? Were they do you think they were making a point? I think so, because they burn straight past like those um, pretty much defenseless smaller planets like in the uh, outer reaches uh, around Dominica Minor, just to fall on the biggest part of the resistance and completely wipe it out. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think they're absolutely sending a point uh, where it's a lot more... Um, uh, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about how on Laskal, they actually descended to cast down the Aquila and leave the um, Imperial Garrison commander uh, strung up in front of the uh, Death Guard flag to really send a message. And I kind of think that's what they're doing here, just on a bigger scale. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, look, man, if you virus bomb a planet, right, there's nobody left to call for help, right? There's no, there's no message that's going to get out. But if you go down there and you just, you know, wholesale scale genocide, um, I mean, that takes some time. And, you know, while you're, while you're doing that, you know, there's going to be pleas for help going out. I think maybe another part of it, too, is, you know, I don't know how much of that life eater virus the Death Guard had when they, you know, left Istvan, but probably not an infinite supply. So maybe they were holding it for the, the times that they 
absolutely needed it um and that this that was a, yeah, yeah. It, it is like almost lost archaeotech it's probably not just you know sitting around but um time and time again we've talked throughout this series about how the planets uh themselves are doing almost as much damage as horus and everybody under them from really um, locking themselves down and becoming isolated i think maybe too this could be a ploy you know to further increase that um that fear factor uh, and really cause issues farther into the campaign because this is actually pretty new. Uh, this is still in the I don't know beginning third, let's say, of the uh, Coronet Deeps conflict as a whole. So I oh. think, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Pat. Oh no, no, no! I was just gonna agree with Jason. Like it's super early on, um, and yeah, just kind of like a shock and awe campaign by the Death Guard. J- just seems really apropos for them, you know? Yeah, because each of those planets in isolation, I mean, entire systems aren't able to stand up to this Death Guard assault. So single planets by themselves are going to stand like less than no chance. And the more planets they can get terrified and locking down and trying to isolate themselves, I mean, the better this is going to go for Horus and all of his cronies. Yeah, because, I mean, we have to remember, Horus really doesn't care about these sectors right now. I mean, yes, they're important, but he's going for the crown. He he doesn't, he was going for Terra. This is just a stepping stone, and, like, if he can scare the hell out of the populace and make them, like, become introverted and lock completely down, that's just one less place he has to bomb, or one less place he has to deal with. That they're not going to come after him. Because the biggest threat they're facing right now is um, Mezua and possibly their Death Star technology. But um, that is the biggest problem they have in this entire sector. And they are locking it down. Almost every resource they have that's not in the Death Guard fleet is going to blockade them. Again. But, uh, sorry. So, back on track here. Talk about these Caldera cities. So, the Death Guard are storming into these things, and the best thing that can be said is the cities tried um they start forming uh, scratch militias from these are giant um open air mines like i was saying um like you would kind of see you know today but on a much larger scale and so miners and workers are forming scratch militias to attack and lay ambushes uh they actually outnumber the death guard 20 or 30 to uh but they're still completely overmatched um they're pretty much all have uh you know, locally sourced small arms. Uh, they say like auto carbines, a few las locks, which are more or less useless against power armor. And you've got very, very uh, few heavier weapons like cruiser mortars, uh, some older pattern auto cannons. But just like everything else, the Death Guard, as soon as they assess a threat that can actually cause the problems, they almost instantly neutralize it. Uh, the militias do not have much steam behind them either. The uh, planetary militias, uh, they break and run pretty early on. And the Death Guard advance almost unopposed, exterminating everything, uh, civilian or otherwise, and demolishing buildings in the way. So again, I think this goes more to the evidence of really trying to send a point. Um, the uh, <laughs> uh, Speaking to chemical bombardment, though, they actually have uh, batteries of whirlwind open fire in worker hat to start trying to cut down on these uh, scratch militias that are, I mean, not doing a whole lot, but are apparently kind of annoying. Uh, and the <laughs> the Death Guard uh, having like negative 10 chill wait until the very last holds of resistance are, you know, tiny bunkers, a uh, few militia garrisons, and they've basically corralled everybody that's still resisting into these places. 
and then they just flood them all with phosphex. So they're not pulling any punches here. Uh, the only two points of planetary resistance that last for any time at all um, are the uh, largest starport on the planet, which we'll talk in about a second, and the uh, fortified entrance to those guildmasters uh, we talked about. They actually have a subsurface comp, which um, is holding out really well because there's a very tiny garrison of um, salamanders uh, that have, they are refugees from Istvan, and, uh, you know, salamanders, uh, altruistic do-gooders that they are, instead of just uh, moving on after regrouping, they have uh, stayed and set up shop, and they've vowed to defend Dominica Minor from the last. Well, I, actually, Jason, I don't think, I think they couldn't go on. I think their ship was, was basically too badly damaged. Oh, was it? Yeah, no, I, I, I just read that uh, while you were talking. Okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah, no. So, um, so I, I, this is to me, this is such an interesting point, right? Because we start to see the survivors of the Istvan tragedy, right? The first one, um, Istvan three, as well as Istvan five, um, starting to make their way back. Uh, to some form of refuge and uh, they don't all make it and they don't all make it very far. And, and we'll see that again throughout, I think the, our exploration of the coronid deeps. Um, but they do actually, just a handful of salamanders do set up quite a resistance um, on Dominica minor, which is, which is pretty cool. And uh, I'm Jason, I'm going to let you get into it, man. Cause you, you definitely have uh, the better story arc. All right. So, yeah, I just assumed the salamanders had hung around because, you know, they're kind of a, have a habit of caring about base humanity. They're going to set up shop, hang out, and uh, see the humans off well. Yeah, no, the, the, I think it's page 33 in book four, the topper right-hand quadrant. It says, The salamanders were recent arrivals, refugees from the orbital battle around Istvan. Their crippled strike ship had made the journey to Dominica Minor against the odds but could travel no further, and they were trapped there, doomed, it seemed, to replay the fate that had befallen so many of their brothers before them. So, yeah, I mean, tragic, man. Tragic. That was a good catch. All right, so let's get into those um, defensive holdouts here. Uh, these are two cool little sections called the hammer and the side on uh, page 33 and 34, respectively, if you're following along. So, the hammer. Uh, let's talk about this spaceport. So at this spaceport, uh, the workers of these giant caldera mines have managed to weaponize uh, these huge industrial digging machines. And they're essentially the size of scout titans. Uh, they're super heavily armored. Uh, they're not very mobile at all, but they're super tough and they're not going anywhere. And they can actually uh, kind of resist the heavy support squad fire and uh, attacks. Uh, the Death Guard have actually gotten to the point they're trying to rewire servitors to uh, kind of send them in for like little suicide runs to take out these things. Um, and the very first uh, legionary based attack on this starport is actually thwarted more or less entirely uh, thanks to these giant mining. So this, just like everything else, uh, the Death Guard kind of take a punch and come back like with pretty serious overkill. Uh, this is where uh, I think it's the first time House Maccabeus has actually uh, shown up in the narrative so far. But uh, this is the bonded house for the Death Guard. And uh, they're, you know, massive, uh, let's see, the Crimson Blaze and Crossed Black Warhammer House Maccabeus, you know, 
shown proudly alongside the heraldry, you know, of their massive uh, lander ships. And uh, these lander ships come down and dump off about 30 knights to kill off these uh, industrial machines. And they have a really interesting breakdown of knights tasked with eliminating specific things. Uh, like the paladins eliminate the uh, combat servitors that have been uh, protecting the flanks of these machines. Uh, the castigators and the acheron flank and eliminate like gun pits and militia holdouts. And uh, lancers and uh, errants attack these massive mining machines, which uh, even if you're... Uh, industrial armor can hold out against things like a uh, you know missile fire las cannons there's not much they can do against those giant thermal lances from knight errants and again uh sadly these guys um these giant mining machines aren't very nimble so uh like the serastis lancers can really easily flank and harry them and kind of poke out vital bits and hydraulics and more or less any resistance left over, the knights kind of flush towards the uh, cordon of Death Guard that have this entire place surrounded. And uh, that was the end of that little holdout. So not going too hot so far. Hey, Jason, what I, what I love about this is, you know, you, you see right here, like page 32 and 33, they almost take a whole two pages to do this beautiful full color plate. This, uh, you know, it's just very dramatic. It's very, very thin. Uh, yeah. Uh, thematic and cinematic uh, uh, visual of House Maccabeus and the Knight Castigator. And then they go on to, to define the different roles of the Knights in the in the night house um tactically right and 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 because book four introduces for the first time in the Horus heresy and warhammer 30k uh rules for many many of these knights and then rules for playing them as um you know it's its own army as a questorus night house and so i i do love to see that tie-in between you know lore and rule set because I think uh, really only, <clears throat> I mean, Forge World does that better than anybody else. They've got the, uh, you know, they've got the scope to be able to do that, uh, which I think is part of the reason it just draws me to these books. So this is one of the reasons that book four here holds a special little place in like my hobby heart, because I mean, you can't really play 30K without, you know, enjoying Space Marines at least a little bit even if they're not your favorite. But um, book four really opened up so many other options uh, for just playing really the real heroes of the, you know, Great Crusade and the Horus Heresy, uh, baseline humanity. Yeah, no, absolutely. Book four and book five really expanded the world exponentially. And uh, I think I'm kind of between book four and book five. I'm not quite sure which is my favorite book, but I'm, I'm leaning towards book four. I mean, I really think this is the, this is the pinnacle of, of what Forge World produced in uh, in the Horus Heresy. Not that everything else is not just amazing, um, but uh, Book Four is uh, it's it's a special place in my heart as well. Okay, sorry for that, listeners. Back to uh, back to the story. Back on it. So let's talk about those uh, twenty salamanders hold up. So they're essentially holding the front of this subsurface guild hall. Not quite by themselves. Uh, they have the remnants of the uh, Guildmaster bodyguard there with them. But uh, it's still not that great of a deal. Uh, they're fighting as well as they can, but they are completely outnumbered. And uh, the big problem, bigger problem here, not only are they outnumbered, but uh, eventually word that surviving Astartes are holding out against them uh, really kind of prods uh, Mortarian himself and 
direction. So the uh, Mortarian coming down to Earth here is uh, pretty pretty obvious. Uh, the Death Guards stop firing. They back off. There's kind of a eerie silence across the uh, battlefield as a whole. And when they come back, uh, like kind of like the uh, retreat and surge from a tsunami, uh, Mortarian is leading the charge with his personal you know, Death Shroud bodyguard. Uh, really, it's, again, just like as a whole, the system itself didn't really have a chance to begin with. Neither did the Salamanders here. So they managed to take down a single Death Guard and kill about 20 Death Guard legionaries before they hit the line. But as soon as Mortarian is in amongst them, they're pretty much on borrowed time. Uh, he manages to kill about six Salamanders, uh, in his initial charge, and with the rest of the 14th uh, advancing behind them, they basically roll over everything. The only thing to give Mortarian pause here uh, is the former third company champion, uh, now a dreadnought named Shark Grin. Uh, he's the former Consul Centurion of Third Company. Uh, he gives a good fight, but uh, this is kind of amusing because if by the rules, uh, Mortarian is not terrific at taking apart Dreadnoughts. So this may be a tiny in-joke on their part, but uh, Mortarian manages to uh, take this uh, Contemptor, former Third Company champion, uh, down bit by bit. And uh, it gave him pause, but uh, the end result was kind of never in doubt. So Dominica Minor itself is taken over in less than three hours. Brutal. Yeah, I think I think we see part of what the Death Death Guard's uh, strategy was overall in taking down Dominica Minor like that. Um, when actually we just get to the next part, which is um, Moab. All right, the sorrow of Moab. Kind of forgot about this little part. All right, so yeah, let's get straight into Moab. Um, so this place, uh, pretty prop. Um, pretty prosperous, uh, pretty populous. Uh, it's kind of the trading and travel hub of the entire Cyclops cluster. So Dominica Minor is more the seat of like government. Uh, this is more like um, sort of like a space version of Constantinople. Uh, you've got all sorts of confluences, warp current junctions between uh, the Cyclops cluster itself and the Manichaean Commonwealth which we'll be getting into just a bit here. Uh, it's a very common kind of travel stopover for colonists and uh, kind of like mine workers uh, moving to a bunch of different parts of the sector. So like Dominica Minor is huge on mining. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is where a lot of those workers kind of stop off first, kind of have a layover and then get deployed. Um, it's not really a priority world, even though it's kind of a hub. Uh, it's not a seat of government. It's not like a forge world. So it's kind of lower down the chain. And it's really, uh, it's kind of suffered from this uh, offensive. A lot of its defensive fleets have already kind of been repurposed. So it's really just left with some picket ships and a couple of uh, orbital gun stations. Now, uh, this is interesting because it's not the Death Guard that show up here, but the Sons of Horus. Uh, there are eight strike cruisers that come into orbit alongside the Icon uh, shows back up again, broadcasting the same message it's given. Uh, since it came in to the Coronet Deeps as a whole. Uh, the orbital substations here around Moab are pretty immediately destroyed. Uh, they're not really effective without kind of a coordinated deal with us, those big system defense ships. Uh, the really only useful satellite, uh, there's a single one, 
it's a sort of a boarding station is really just boarded almost as an afterthought. Um, and the Sons of Horus ships are kind of staying outside the engagement range of uh, ground fire because they honestly don't have to do anything. Because what happened, uh, this planet, uh, Moab, is uh, under the purview of an Imperial commander, a guy named Malthus Grange. And he immediately tries to surrender, but kind of it goes completely unacknowledged. Uh, they start to send repeat requests. Um, they become, say, increasingly panicked, and uh, stuff starting to break down bad. Uh, the barons on Moab are beginning to kind of turn on one another, you know, blame each other for stuff, and near planet-wide civil insurrection breaks out here. Uh, it gets to the point that the Imperial commander, Malthus, uh, he really only lives for about a paragraph here before he's uh, murdered, and uh, the citizens try uh, sending images of his corpse uh, to accompany the newer surrender requests. Uh, right now, uh, as the Sons of Horus sit in orbit around the planet, the planet's tearing itself apart trying to surrender before they're wiped out like all of the other ships, or uh, all of the other planets in the system have been. Uh, and their requests are answered by pick captures. Uh, they're said to show legionaries in snarling black prune helm, and they're near unrecognizable. Um, and again, this is from stuff recovered like long after the fact. Uh, the master of the icon says that the people of Moab have made a beginning but it's nowhere near enough that uh <laughs> Horus specifically has sent them to save them from the lies of the emperor and the weakness the emperor has cast upon them it's really a dire payment required for their salvation and the only way to do that is to serve Horus um what's really interesting here is uh Horus is almost deified uh it sounds almost similar to how some of the word bearers treated Lorgar uh, and I really think it kind of shows the influence of some of the warrior lodges that have really worked in here and have really subverted that idea of the imperial truth. So the master of the icon tells them, kill in his name and live or perish with your emperor's name on your lips. It is for you to decide. A few days later, uh, landers start to descend on Moab, uh, which has basically torn itself apart at this point. And any of the survivors are press ganged into the War Master's service. And that is the end of Moab as a whole. Yeah, just just absolutely grim and super dark. The kind of stuff that I know you and I love, Jason. That's why we do yeah. that. That's why we do this, man. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, just you know, maybe says something about us, but uh, yeah, no, I mean it's it is absolutely as grim and as dark as you can get. The description of uh, how Moab is is basically torn apart from from inside out through propaganda and terror tactics, um, and then the remaining populace is just pressed into service to serve the war master, and probably uh, whatever remains of their miserable lives will be you know, even more harrowing than surviving the blood letting on Moab. Um, but interestingly enough, Jason, and I offer this as just a tiny light of hope for our listeners. Um, and you guys have heard me say this before, but I will mention it again, probably many more times before we're done with the Coronet Deeps. But if you are Battlefleet Gothic fans, which you, you should be, uh, if you're not, go out and get you some. Uh, page 159 of the Battlefleet Gothic gives you a beautiful rendition of um, 
the Cyclops, Cluster, Portmaw, Gessamane, and many other subsectors within the Coronid Deeps, uh, you may be happy to know that Moab survives into the 41st millennia as, no doubt, a civilized world. So I mean, it must... Nobody on Moab? They're like horribly slaughtered in the worst possible way. Yeah, no, absolutely nobody on Moab survived. So it was probably repopulated at a at a later date. What do you think? It would have to be. Yeah, like post crusade, maybe even late scouring even, you know. Oh, I'm I'm thinking way late scouring, maybe even much later. Um You think you know. in past Badat Wars or like I'm thinking maybe M thirty five. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. But this is pure speculation on my part. Like, absolutely no hard fact on this. Other than by the Gothic Wars, which I think were M38, um, they are a civilized world again. So, um, which is which is fitting, right? Because, uh, and this is the brilliance of Forge World, right? This is the brilliance of that writing team, it, it, is they took Moab, a civilized world, in uh, M38, whenever the Gothic Wars happened, Um and they said, hey, this this world was systematically depopulated in the most horrific way. But its infrastructure was left intact. And there's every reason to believe that at some later date they were they were repopulated. They were found and repopulated. We, we know Mazoa survives, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So maybe Mazoa repopulates them and uses them as a, you know, eh, world to uh, supply labor again. Who knows? All right, Jason, I know you've got more to get into. Oh, of course. So, heading on into silence falls over the Cyclops cluster. So, talk about uh, the Cyclops cluster at large. Uh, by the tail end of 007 and 31, that flow of refugee ships uh, from uh, into the Manichaean Commonwealth as a whole kind of just cuts off like a tap. Uh, the last news the Commonwealth gets from the Cyclops cluster is just worlds taken over by the War Master, steamrolled by the Death Guard, and uh, ones that haven't have just descended into open revolt. Uh, really, Mazoa is the only holdout, and that is completely blockaded by Pandex, the Death Guard, all sorts of repurposed system monitors. Um, that's like the one tiny light of hope from the Cyclops cluster. Uh, all sorts of propaganda-esque stories are coming out of Mezua. Uh, I will pronounce it differently every time I say it. Uh, the very first assault by the Death Guard uh, trying to make Planetfall apparently uh, thwarted by a interesting technology they have that is said to destabilize the planetary mantle itself uh, and causes a... Um, terrestrial collapse under the landing zone uh even crazier reports say that like island-sized chunks of uh rock and magma are hurled at the attacking spaceships uh and some sort of wacky you know story that we'll probably get into a little deeply uh more deeply someday way in the future uh something called the dragon is a crazy war machine unearthed on istvan uh destroys a traitor archimandrite general so uh that's uh, not a whole lot of good news other than uh, Mazoa coming out of the Cyclops cluster here. So our next big part is the Manichaean War itself. A uh, little bit of background on this place. Uh, independent Dominion, uh, it's self-governing, and it's the kind of biggest subsector here to the galactic east of the Cyclops cluster. Uh, really, uh, here in the Coronid Deeps, it's the Manichaean Commonwealth and Port Maw that's really the uh, really the link 
linchpin of like everything going on here. Uh, the center of the Manichaean Commonwealth is Manichaea Vaisadae, uh, which is a pretty uh, giant hive world. Uh, it's uh, said to be equal in population and capacity of uh, industrialization to any of uh, hives in the Segmentum Solar or Port Mall. So uh, the Commonwealth itself is important because it's a border subsector. Uh, it's really heavily fortified. These are not like, you know, outlying fringe worlds um, or even uh, kind of more fringy systems like the uh, Cyclops cluster. Uh, this is like heavily fortified. It's heavily populated. There are a lot of valuable worlds. There. Uh, Port Maw is not quite as large, but it's a lot more uh, industrialized and militarized with uh, the Imperialis Armada. Uh, Port Ma itself is home to a massive fleet uh, of about 170 capital ships and almost 1,000 escorts and support vessels uh, for patrolling all of these fringe systems. And uh, what's also interesting, between Ma and the secondary bastions in Manache and the Numinal system, uh, they have a combined force of 193 solar auxilia cohorts. Now, this is something I wanted to take a small aside and discuss a bit, which occasionally I find Forge World may or may not have a comfortable grasp on scale. So the solar auxilia here are forces under Grand Admiral uh, Osiphus Lebray. Oh, Lebray. <laughs> Lebray. So he has uh, 3.86 million solar auxilia under his command, which sounds like a lot. But the issue I have, these are across multiple subsystems. And the solar auxilia are super elite. But uh, if we want to take like a real world example, uh, the absolute most super conservative estimates I could ever find uh, in World War II uh, put the Soviet casualties at something like 8.6 million killed and 15 million wounded. So that's more than twice the number of solar auxilia that are even alive to defend multiple subsectors. And that's in a space much smaller than just a single planet. But uh, Dave, what's your take on that? So, I mean, that's a really interesting um, analogy. I, I would say that I think World War II historians would say that the eight, the eight point something million um, Soviets that died in World War II were, those were like men under arms, right? That the actual like civilian population uh, in Russia that died was at astronomically higher, exponentially higher, somewhere on the order of, you know, 40 to 60 million. Um, so I think if you look at what the solar auxilia is, which are, you know, they're part of the Imperialis Exerta, and they're, you know, they're essentially um, tasked at, you know, defending the Imperium, um, but they're also basically on board these, um, these fleets, that I'm not sure that they're out, that's an out of proportion statement. Uh, in terms of what the the collateral civilian damage would be, um, and then you know they're also probably using just the just how many people can you put on a spaceship kind of you know thing. Well, so like for me with the solar auxilia, I kind of think of them how um, like ships of the line during say for instance to bring a, another war into perspective uh the napoleonic era like british ships of the line you would ships of the line uh merchant vessels and things of that nature would have like maybe a couple uh royal marines on board to protect it like that that's how i see it like you're saying dave you know they're they're the elite of the elite so at least as far as humans go we 
we can then get into transhumans and things like that. But yeah, no, I, I no, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that's uh, they're there to protect, you know, the uh, you know the deck officers uh, on these these uh, capital ships and you know within the fleet, and they're used for ground based action, but they're not used for ground based action the same way that like we think of the Imperial Guard. Like a lot of people are going to go back and say, oh, well, the Solar Auxilia just became the Imperial Guard. No, absolutely not. Like the Solar Auxilia did not become the Imperial Guard. The Solar Auxilia probably became, you know, um, the Imperial Navy's. Uh, the Black you know, Guard, right? Yeah, the Black Guard, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I don't know, Jason. I think those numbers are probably, they're probably within a margin of error. Oh, yeah, it does make a lot more sense when you outline it like that. Yeah. I mean, if you told me, like, that was the total amount of militia he had, I'd be a little worried, but... Oh, no, it uh, elucidates a little... That point a little bit later, there are, quote, tens of millions of planetary militia, which does sound good to scale. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, the, 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 the Solar Auxilia were void-hardened, trained specifically for ship-to-ship boarding actions, um, and they were um, they were the elite of the elite. So I think that's uh, that's probably a good estimation. Whatever you know, y- you know, whatever the Imperial militia had was probably many, many hundreds of times greater forces than uh, the Solar Auxilia would ever have. All right. So, uh, speaking about those available sources, besides the Solar Auxilia and the Militia, uh, there are also very, very small garrisons of Astartes kind of across the Manichaean Commonwealth. Um, there's actually a small Imperial Fist garrison on uh, stationed on Manichaea Lux uh, ever since the Great Crusade originally liberated it. And uh, Seventh Legionnaires being Seventh Legionnaires, they immediately kind of ship themselves out to various points around the Commonwealth and act as advisors uh, for, you know, counter-siege, building defensive structures from planetary assault, things like that. Uh, However, most of the survivors of the Istvan atrocity don't stay uh, in the Commonwealth as they sort of flee back uh, through it. Uh, for one, they kind of, uh, at a lot of points, see themselves as above being commanded by a, you know, mere human. Uh, they are Astartes, after all, and they kind of use Manichea as a waypoint to kind of regroup and then move on uh, back further towards the galactic core. Now, uh, Port Ma here that uh, we mentioned briefly a second ago, uh, it's the home of a massive fleet, but like a lot of other things during the heresy, Horus had a plan going into it far, far before the actual outbreak. Uh, For decades beforehand, he's slowly been uh, transitioning Port Ma's, you know, effective fleet to sort of um, useless assignment. Uh, It had been deployed to very far edges of their operational command, unlike these deep-range patrols for really half-baked, you know, kind of rumors of pirate and Xenos activity. Um... Or better yet, assigned to conflicts way, way out of their way, whether uh, they're really needed or not. So uh, once the heresy is apparent, uh, these different you know squadrons and cohorts of solar auxilia are placed on immediate recall. But uh, it's a pretty big problem because they're so wide-ranged across the galaxy at large. Uh, and two, it's even more so because... There's been a massive upswing in warp turbulence from the outbreak of the heresy, uh, thanks to your friend and mine, uh, Erebus, you know, doing crazy shenanigans and 
Cal. So uh, by the time the Manichaean War kind of breaks out in uh, 006 M31, uh, the Port Maw fleet has really been chasing ghosts for years, like out in the fringes. And um, just all across the Coronet Deeps, they're getting reports of uh, enemy warships, civil unrest, and... Now that the dark compliance that Horus and uh, Mortarian are rolling back through with have reached and kind of oversteamed the Cyclops cluster, uh, the Grail Abyss, uh, Lethe, and uh, Laskal, and even planets on the very edge of the Commonwealth itself, uh, these ships and cohorts are trying to return as quickly as possible. Uh, some of them are so far out, and the warp being wacky as it is, some of them just never really return. Um, a really big problem. Uh, ships that have been, quote, tentatively identified uh, belonging to rogue trader militant uh, Rom Jutlander. Uh, they have been attacking out of this thing called the, uh, let's see, the Cornid Prohibited Zone, which is a, a pretty big splutch of uh, essentially the space version of Here There Be Dragon uh, on any of the maps you can check out in here. Uh, even the Port Mall authorities are kind of forbidden to enter that spot. And uh, Dave, if you don't mind, uh, would you uh, break down the Coronid uh, prohibited zone that for us? Yeah, no, absolutely. The Coronid is a pretty fascinating little spot in the uh, in in both real time and um, what navigators would see uh, in the warp. And trying to find there's a call out box here. If you go to page, if you want to follow along with us at home, listeners, if you go to page 73, um, it's part of an examination more largely of the Cornid Deep principal planets, which is really cool. Um, I love this section of uh, book four because it just, it gives you the depth that you're looking for. Um, it's almost like a companion text to what we've been reading. So you could almost read this part of the book along with uh, the the narrative story arc that Jason's been going through. Um, but the Cornid Prohibition Zone, um, I won't read all of this, but an astro-navigational hazard of considerable size and uncertain borders, the Cornid Prohibition Zone, also commonly known as the Coronis Abomination, and popularly to the members of the Navis Nobilite as the White Darkness borders the central northern edge of the Coronid Deeps region, and by popular wisdom among the Void Faring presents the most obvious reason for the dividing point of the ancient Segmenta in human stellar cartography. They're obviously talking about uh, Segmenta Ultima and Segmenta Obscurus which Port Ma divides. And Port Ma, I believe, was set up uh, as a as a both a failsafe um, and a and a guard uh, to the Coronid Prohibition Zone. Um, but it is a literal nothingness. You can't see into it. You can't see out of it. You go in, your chances of coming out are pretty slim, and your chances of coming out in anywhere approximating the right time uh would be would be slim to none so uh it's a pretty cool i think it's a pretty cool little narrative uh of you know vice and i think um you know hopefully we'll get some more depth into the coronid uh prohibition zone at a later date but i i do i love these little um I don't know spots on the map that uh, that Forge World has given us, and I think exists to this day. I don't know. I'll have to go look at my map, Jason, to see if it's still part of the uh, Imperius Dominatus, uh, which is the the M forty one map that I have. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's a place you don't want to end up for sure. <laughs> 
Not great for anyone involved. All right, so let's talk about the little fleet coming out of here at this rogue trader militant. So Jutlander is actually, uh, well, I was going to say formerly, but probably still is at this point we're discussing, uh, attached to the 63rd Expeditionary Fleet. They were specifically uh, serving as pathfinders for the fleet itself, which uh, the 63rd Expeditionary Fleet, of course, is Horus's personal one, uh, Regulus, the uh, Erebus of the Mechanicum, also tied to it. But pretty much uh, the 63rd Fleet is the hub for all the crazy heresy hijinks that kind of like ground zero for everything. Um, so big deal coming out of this prohibited zone. Uh, they're launching little attacks from it. Uh, worse yet, they now have to deal with a massive Space Hulk that is one of a size that has rarely been seen before uh with a fleet of small parasite parasitic warships kind of in tow behind it uh coming in on the edge of what's known as the vorlath system v-l-o-r-l-a-t-h uh this really sends the commonwealth as a whole its fleet scrambling in with help from port Ha to try and repel this thing so uh it's speculated that it could have been just a terrible coincidence but it seems a little too convenient to come in right at the same moment they're trying to deal with attacks across the subsector as a whole so uh this big giant space hulk uh which caught pat's attention because it's infested with like big crazy mutated <laughs> yeah it is so uh named per the coda navis uh this Space Hulk is codenamed the Red Polyphemus. Uh, it's a conglomeration like most Space Hulks of, you know, wacky planetary rock, wreckage, ancient star wrecks, things like that. Um, the theory is it's drawn into the Vlorleth system because uh, Vlorleth Strader, seventh planet in the system, has a really strong astropathic relay. Uh, it really drops straight out of the warp after a really potent warp storm. And while orcs, as kind of a galactic threat, have really been tamped down by the Great Crusade and uh, more or less broken at Ulanor, uh, this is kind of like uh, a really big problem still on the fringe worlds. Because while a single Space Hulk might not be the biggest problem for the Imperium at large, you know, with a few, you know, however many thousands of orcs, for a smaller system like this, and again, these planets are really, you know, self-isolating themselves, it becomes a massive issue. Um, yeah, and uh, real quick, Jason, like, you have to realize, like, the scale of a space hulk is essentially the size of, like, a small moon, or from, like, a small moon to, like, a medium-sized planet. Um, these things are gigantic. And you could have just as many solar auxilia that Jason just mentioned about, just orcs instead, you know? Like, we're talking millions upon millions of orcs just hanging out in this hulk, ready to wog and just destroy shit. Uh, about the size of a small moon, you say? Uh, close to it. Maybe a little bigger. So what you're saying is that orcs also might have access to Death Star technology. <laughs> That's only for the mechs to know. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, speaking of these orcs, uh, they're said to be particularly degenerate, um, and they're described as half-devolved. Now, orcs are already pretty bad, and the ones during 30k, they're uh, you know, everything bigger and better the farther back you go. So, orcs are gigantic. Uh, the Emperor had to fight orcs the size of Imperial Knights. <laughs> At Ulanor, it's all sorts of crazy. But these are like crazy, half-devolved, like Neanderthal version of orcs. 
So, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So uh, this is said to be the largest concentration of orcs in the system in 30 years. Uh, Port Maul, actually, even with their depleted resources, they muster an entire battle group to try and combat this thing. Uh, what's really uh, kind of rough, though, by the time that uh, battle group gets there, uh, the Valorless Strader uh, relay is already overrun by mutated orcs. And this bugs the hell out of me. If anybody knows what a gyre worm is, let us know. Because Dave see, and I both have been trying to track this down. See, I read that as gear worms, but um, I could be wrong. I wonder if it's something that we'll find out about later, or if it's like maybe another designation of orcs, just possibly. I don't know, because like orcs don't normally like join together with other races, because they just... Right. Besides. To kill and feed. I mean, other than in the 40k, you have, um, let's see, uh, I think it's the snake bites that uh, that can that do trade with rogue traders and things like that. Um, but that's about it. But it's really bothering me until I figure out <laughs> what these things are. But we'll figure it out. Uh, so it said uh, the Lorless Trader Relay was already overrun. Tens of thousands of mutated orcs and gyre worms had made planetfall on Valorless Strader, while the space self Hulk itself plows madly onward. So the longer this Hulk survives, the bigger a problem it's going to be. Because essentially, it's almost like it's contagious, and any planet or relay or orbital station it gets close to, it's just going to even accidentally vomit orcs onto. <laughs> you don't, you don't want that. Just no. It doesn't work out well for any orcs are like cockroaches. They they're hard to get rid of. Yeah. Also, I meant blood axes, not not snake bite. Uh, but, okay. Good. Yeah, that is uh, always good to correct ourselves early on. Yeah. But the blood, but the snake bites would make sense because they talk about them being feral, and and that's their whole thing. Where like the old ways is the right ways, and so like they run around with just shooters and really common axes. But enough of that. Back to you, Jason. So. This battle group trying to uh, chase down Space Hulk. Problem, because it's uh, built from elements that were originally intended to kind of try and help out the Cyclops cluster. So I think essentially at this point, the authorities in Port Ma have decided like, well, that's a lost cause. Uh, this is a problem we can actually solve. But uh, again, additional problem. Under normal circumstances, they would have, uh, you know, kind of attached Astarte strike teams that could board these Space Hulks and, you know, plant munitions and destroy it internally, which is a lot more attractive than the plan they have to go with, uh, because they are essentially forced to follow it uh, at close range and try and bombard it into scrap. Now, this is a big problem because uh, close range bombardments kind of leave the fleet vulnerable to, um, you know, the orcs counterboarding. And... Uh, the solar auxilia are already, you know, heavily pressed, but uh, they're really the only way that the entire Vlorleth Strader response is possible in the first place. If they weren't there, this would have gone crap in a handbasket even faster. Uh, but the solar auxilia are actually leading counter invasion of all of these colony worlds that the orcs have kind of, you know, vomited orcs on as the Space Hulk steams past, and uh, they form the main defense uh, from that consistent threat of counterboarding from the Space Hulk at close range. And this entire assault on the Hulk lasts into the very end days of the uh, Manichaean conflict at large, 007. Uh, the Hulk finally begins to kind of fragment up, 
but it's just cost a huge amount of resources. Uh, it's really tied down this huge fleet element that can't be used anywhere else right now. And uh, this is actually when word finally officially reaches Port Ma from uh, both Laskell and Dominica Minor. Uh, and there's the main resistance here in the Coronet Reach is the Manichaean Commonwealth over here. In East. So uh, the two big militarized forces uh, between Port Ma and uh, the Manichaean Commonwealth are Numenal and Agathon. I'm sure we'll be coming back to Agathon many, many times during the series, but uh, they're aware that they have zero chance if the rest of the Manichaean Commonwealth falls. So uh, the entire Commonwealth is mobilized uh, to fortify the eastern border, and uh, all of the warp lanes that are exits from the Cyclops cluster are fortified. They're aggressively seeded with ward uh, void mines and every possible fleet asset across the subsystems that aren't engaged with that space hulk fiasco are recalled to Port Maw to meet the uh, what they assume is going to be the direct assault from the Death Guard fleet that are now again assumed because they don't know ex you know the exact uh, position of anything, but uh, they assume there's going to be a massive direct assault from the Death Guard fleet from the uh, now silent Cyclops cluster. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is just so good, man. Um, and I don't know how much further, Jason, we're going to take it. But uh, yeah, Vorloth getting cut off as the only reliable form of, of astro-telepathic communication between uh, Segmenta Ultima, which is where we are now. We've, we've left Segmenta Obscurus. We've, we've crossed over into the Manichaean subsector within the Port Maw sort of... Uh, sphere but definitely within ultima segmenta and and the only way they can communicate back with with uh segmenta solar and terra is through this one um astropathic relay at uh, vorlath at least reliably and um yeah it's we're setting it up right we're setting it up for the big battle at uh well you guys know where it's coming to right absolutely oh yeah all right i think that's a good place to uh, kind of wrap it up this time so next time we can get into all that death in the void with uh, Austin and Steve around Port Mall. I'm super excited. I don't know about you guys. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, I am so excited because we still have so much more to go through in the corn and deeps. Um, I mean, like, I don't know. We're just going to keep going until it's not fun anymore. And yeah. Uh, yeah. guys, just for uh, just for like scale and reference purposes, we're on page 40. That's that's as far as we've gotten. <laughs> we're we're going to be here a while, guys. <laughs> but hey, why we do what we do. This isn't heresy undergrad. We're not just giving you the, you know, overview so you can pass a couple of exams. This is heresy grad school. We're getting you ready for like the heresy version of the MCAT at the end of the year. Yeah. That's right. There will be a test. There will indeed. Well, uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, it's It's been fun. Uh, don't forget to like us on Facebook. Uh, follow us or tweet at us as well. Um, if you have any questions, you know, just, just message the Facebook or comment on our posts. We'd love to hear your, your comments and questions. Tell but us 
gyre worms are. This is pissing me off. Yes, please, somebody find this and figure out what the hell they are. Um, yes, there there may or may not be a reward for somebody that can convincingly uh, tell us what gyre worms are. So, oh yeah. no, no, no! I'm putting this out right now. I will give a reward. That's Guaranteed it. reward. All right. You got to convince, convince me. <laughs> and convince Dave. Pat. Uh, no, no, no. Just have to convince Pat. Just me. <laughs> I'm the only important one. But uh, thanks so much, guys, for listening. And uh, Dave, let, let's get at it. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Really, fuck off, Craig. It. Yeah. Fuck off, Craig. Nah, I think tonight we'll 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 tell Craig. We'll tell Craig he's no. he's all right. Hey, sleep well, Craig. Sleep just well. Go away. Just just go away.